Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Shira Saga. Shira is the head of data analytics at the Iconic, and he has more than a decade of experience in the analytics space, and he's worked in the Americas, in Asia, Europe, and obviously Australia. He's covered a a few different industries and gives us insights into all of those. He tells us about why he moved from analytics consulting to building data products and what the difference in mindset is. He tells us about applying lean startup principles in a corporate environment. Also, how to empower people in your organization with data self-service. We talk a lot about culture, team culture, continual learning, hiring data scientists, building a great team and how to relate to the organization. So that's really good. And he also tells us about how to take your stakeholders on a data-driven decision-making journey in the best possible way. It's a really good episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Shira Saga. How are you doing, Matt? Thanks, Felipe. I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to speaking with you. I know that this is going to be a really great conversation, so thank you. At the beginning, I wanted to ask you, what brought you into the data space? What was it that appealed you? I think quite like everyone else, I fell into the data space, uh, voluntarily choosing it out. After uni, I just joined a company that did data science, as they called it, or analytics, as they called it back then. That's how the journey started. The reason I picked this one up was because I was really key, interested in math. And the company that I joined at the start of my career after uni, the tagline was do the math. So it was very bland marketing that way. So I'm like, yeah, I want to do the math all through my life. And that's how I joined it. It's been an interesting journey when it was called uh, business analytics and you know, it's called data analytics, now it's called data science. Now they're calling it uh, AI and world domination maybe in the future. That's true, that's so true itself. It definitely changed a lot. Tell me about your early days in your career. How was that first job that you had at straight out of uni? The first job out of uni was uh, quite interesting for the fact that you're just raring to go. You want to prove to people that you can actually do stuff or worth the money that you're earning, just being silly. Uh, but the yes. idea there again was basically we worked on a lot of interesting problems. We solved point problems for a lot of big companies, Fortune 500 companies. I can't name the companies. So that's how consulting world works. You just say a large player in X. You can put in uh, the names. For example, the first client I worked for was one of the biggest insurers, property and casualty insurers in the US. And we were, mm-hmm. my first project was to understand what is causing people to not file a claim online and why are they dropping away? And this is when filing a claim online was all the rage and they were advertising it like crazy and it saved a lot of time for claimants to 
what are the insurance not having to go to a person and look at it and they had to file it online and a lot of people were dropping away and i remember my first analysis was to understand what are all the bottlenecks in the online process that is stopping you from filing a claim and then we figured out we went into the clickstream logs did a bunch of analysis tried to find out what happened and some of we really remember my first project but interestingly all the other projects were for either insurance companies or retail companies trying to either segment their customers trying to predict who will buy next or trying to understand why somebody is churning and so on and so forth so that kind of rich experience at the beginning gives you a good idea of what kind of problems can be solved and because you work across industries everybody in the telco industry talks about churn it's as, that's the first thing that you hear in a in a year earnings call as the first thing you see on a executive metric but in a non telco company nobody even understands the word churn or doesn't even worry about customers hmm. moving so it's interesting when you work in an industry like that and when you work across industries you pick one of those interesting topics or models or patterns and then apply it in a different industry and the insights are amazing if you start thinking about the retail world and thinking about why customers are churning maybe it's not exactly the same churn as telco but at least you start understanding why customers are stopping to buy from you that kind of cross pollination of ideas from one vertical or one industry to the other was really helpful in my first job yes i can see that and it's something that's so amazing about the data space that it can be applied almost anywhere yeah that's really interesting and tell me what about your early consulting days what was something that was unexpected for you when you came in so the unexpected bit is everybody assumes that you do some work and somebody will use it like you don't think about it too much or at least i was probably pretty naive i didn't think about what my work would do i knew i would do some work and i would earn my keep to say but what would that do down the stream was not something you think about you would send in an analysis or send in a presentation and they would immediately do it and then they would say oh we saved this many million dollars or we made this many and it's amazing how a person sitting away somewhere on a computer doing an analysis using a bunch of data on a tool can actually have an impact in the real world on real customers on real lives that's kind of actually a little dramatic but it's actually also dramatic for a person who's starting off but also is more of a good validation for the work you're doing and also a good boost for your morale to do more of that work. That's right. That's really good. And what did you move into after that consulting work? I did consulting with quite a bit of time um, interestingly across geographies, across clients and once you do all of that you keep hearing the same uh, one thing I kept hearing from people was the fact that everyone was uh, suddenly interested in not a service as per se analytics as a service or data as a service. they're more interested in data or analytics as a product which means they were just hoping for a tool to come in instead of a person to come in and solve all their problems without having to have that human interaction so to say and i think it's still a big thing which is basically offering analytics as a platform and as a product service rather than just offering a service so i've always wanted to build an analytics product because of that i would hear clients say can we just build something where i can just directly put all of my data in and it will automatically tell me what to do without having to spend money on somebody coming in doing the analysis every time and all of the stuff so with that in mind i joined a company that actually was building these products so we built a marketing intelligence product or marketing efficiency product where you could directly plug in your double click id or facebook id or any of that stuff and you just close your eyes open it and probably a couple of hours you'll automatically have all kinds of analysis and models that says where are you sp- ineffectively spending your money where should you be spending your money most which channel can actually convert what customer faster and why and so on and so forth so you have the whole suite of things at your disposal and you can immediately start taking action 
and that had a lot of uptake um, at least in the australian market when we built it and released it and it was kind of like a closing the loop for me to also feel good that i wanted to build a product and i eventually got to build a product and send it to the market as well. that's very interesting and what do you think is appealing about getting to build that analytics product the interesting thing is more often than not when people talk about products it's usually almost 70 80% of the times it's basically a suite of reports that's what a product is at least a data product is for me it was not just a report it was something that you could take action out of it's not a dashboard but a dash tool as i like to call it these are products where you could build something it will show you the reports of course but you can actually take action on top of it immediately without having any gap between looking at a report and then going to system and taking action so that's something that a product should do it should enable you to take action instantly so if it says this channel is costing you a lot of money don't waste your money on it you should not just nod your head and say aha uh-huh, that makes sense and then walk away and you'll immediately forget it but if i remove that friction for you and provide you say a button or an action call or whatever it is you just click on it and it automatically takes care of closing down that campaign or immediately diverting funds to different campaign that kind of immediate action makes it all the more useful and makes it a real tool and not just a good to have tool i think being able to think about scenarios where you can build that being able to actually again translate it to real world use cases that's really interesting in building product that is really really interesting and how did you get to understand the customer challenges in such a deep way in order to solve them with the product the way we started the product was to basically a consolidation of everything that the company that i joined was offering as a service they would typically answer a particular set of questions and so we immediately baked all of those questions into a simulation friendly calculated like a simulator friendly product where people wouldn't have to ask that question wait for a week for it to be answered they could just plug in and say okay i have a million more dollars where do i spend click a button it'll automatically tell you what to do and you say yes so that's how it is so how the business used to use the initial analysis we just put it all together into a product that they could use by themselves really interesting and what were some of the challenges that you faced during that time more often than not uh, when you start building a product i think the biggest challenge is always like the, the visual people appreciate what they see rather than what it does more often than not the focus is on how it looks rather than what it does you could build a product that does amazing stuff but if it doesn't look nicer or if the buttons are not shinier or if the boxes are not clickier people wouldn't use it and so that was a big learning for us we built something it was a very uh, skinny looking prototype that did amazing stuff but once we just dumped in a bunch of css made it look nicer the uptake was just like i would say easily 10 15x more than what it was when it was in skinny version so basically a lot of cosmetic surgery to the product is necessary for it to be taken up and used even if it had a lot of actionable I- items to it that is so interesting and so true people are drawn to the visuals how do you think a person can strike the balance between the functionality and the visuals uh, in creating a data product like the first time you show your product to someone else i think it is really really important critical that you get it some form of ux or cx done on top of the product so that because the first time when you show it to someone their initial reaction is oh the color palette you don't want them to even think of all of that you want to pre-think all of that take care of all of that and then show them a product which maybe has has a bunch of css done through but can do basic stuff people are then more than happy to go into the detail otherwise at least a lot of people that i've dealt with who use these products it takes for example if you have a one hour meeting more than 30 minutes of the meeting will just go in all those kind of superficial stuff and you don't want to do that you want to make as much use of your time as possible so 
if you take care of the style part in the beginning, substance will actually add a lot of value in the meeting. That's a great point of view. So essentially what you're saying is features can be fewer, but as long as it looks good, then it's going to get a better reception from the customer. At least the first look should look very user-friendly, customer-friendly. Uh, that's something that we, even here at the Iconic, we focus a lot on the end product should first look and feel more friendly and not intimidating. That's when people will be drawn to it and at least say, oh, let's see what it can do. And so then you can get, once you have their attention, you can do amazing stuff with it. I think gathering that attention, which you can learn from nature too, right? What flowers do and what plants do, they try to look appealing. And then once you're in there, they do whatever they have to do. That, that's how it is. That's so true. And I love that you use the word to make it less intimidating, because I think that's a problem that a lot of people have. And essentially a lot of the users of, of analytics have this feel threatened or intimidated by sometimes by the numbers, by the charts, by the analysis. Do you have any other tips on how to make analytics less intimidating? I think uh, what we've seen, the way we've seen it work, I like to think of it as the data information knowledge and action loop, right? And to make analytics more actionable uh, or useful, it has to be actionable. Whatever data you have, if it's not actionable, it's not useful. And to get that, you need the business user along the journey. And to make it more business friendly, what we do is we don't start analysis to say, this is the data we looked at here. These are the insights. That's not how it is. We always work back the top-down approach, which is what do you want to do? And this was your question. And this is how we thought you should answer your question. And this is, and so basically when you deconstruct it in that way, people are also more invested and interested in it and at least want to hear into your, hear what your analysis is. So it is never bottom-up. These are all the analysis. Now tying all together, this is your executive summary. That's not how we approach an analysis or a problem. This is how we approach the problem and this is why you should do something and that makes it more friendly. But it's easier to do with analysis, but with say stuff like personalization algorithms and recommender systems and optimization algorithms, it is a little more trickier. What tends to happen is these algorithms are more often not black boxes and people who build these are, are on a totally different dimension or a plane and they assume that people understand what this algorithm does. But, and then, so there's always this virtual wall between you and the business who think that you've just given them a black box that they can't understand and it's a bunch of mathematical jargon and useless nonsense. What we do is we actually open up an algorithm to the business show them each step of the way in as logical and physical way as possible and tell them this is what this whole bunch of thing is doing and you'd be amazed at how the business responds amazingly to it they would say by the way did you think of this scenario by the way did you think of that scenario and when they start talking and when you start having that conversation it stops becoming a data team's algorithm it starts becoming the business's algorithm because everyone has had a chance to provide input and talk about what needs to go in and so therefore it becomes like a living, breathing thing that everybody owns and feels accountable for. Starting the conversation from what will it do in the end for the business and then working back to how we did it is how we can make it less intimidating and more approachable. I love that approach, you know, starting with the business question or with the end in mind. And mm -hmm. through the process, it sounds like you're continually teaching the business, I guess, what they would need to know from the data perspective in order to work together to get the best possible outcome. That's fantastic. What does that process look like when it comes to a recommender system? How is the business engaged and taught through the process? Every system at the end of the day has some inbuilt logic in it. Even if you had, say, something as unexplainable as a generative adversarial network of GAN or CNN or whatever it is, at the end of the day, those are all just techniques, right? There is some logic for why you're doing something. 
So we try our best to actually break down any algorithm into modules or components that have a physical meaning. So a recommender system is basically looking at a product and then seeing what that product looks similar to based on a bunch of attributes and traits. We try to make it as modular and as explainable as possible. And then we say we take at least all of these variables into consideration. We take all of these aspects into consideration. And then what the system or the algorithm is doing or the technique is doing is basically trying to connect it all together. But once you open up the features for the business, once you open up what you're doing, you actually get more features from the business than you would get from the data scientists or data team themselves. Because they know how it operates. They know why somebody would like something much better because they're so closer to the product. They're so closer to what really happens. And that kind of synergy is amazing. That's very, very true. And how do you structure the team in order to work with the different parts of the business to deliver the projects? So we believe strongly in what we call T-shaped skills, right? There's data on one end and decisions on the other end. At the end of the day, what you want to do with that data is just make decisions. It could be the customer who wants to make a decision on what to do with the product on site or whatever it is. And it's at the end of the day, the business user who has to make decision on how to run the company based on the data. So data and decision. So that's the end to ends. So to get from data to decision, almost like a journey, the first stage that you need to cross is a data engineering stage, where you get the data from A to B, you clean it, you process it, you put it in data warehouses or ODSs or pipelines, wherever it is, you clean it up, put it in a place that everybody else can consume. That's the first stage. The second stage is the data science bit. You want to actually apply intelligence at scale. Um, for lack of a better label, we will call it data science, but basically the idea is instead of manually analyzing it and looking for patterns, if you're able to do it at scale and solve problems at scale using intelligence and code, that's data science. And finally, the third stage is data translation where you translate the data from math into English so the business can use, right? So those are the three stages. And what we expect is people can play all across all those three stages that work here. And then they specialize or focus on one stage specifically. So like a T, they can play across the spectrum and they can focus on one particular thing so that they are a self-sufficient unit that can do everything by themselves. The way we are structured here, the iconic at least is everybody works in a cross-functional team. So what we say is everybody at the iconic, everybody at least in my team has an X comma Y as their address. So X is the data and analytics team and Y is the team that they work for, like on a, like on a cartridge lane. And they exclusively work with some department and all the departments across the board at the Iconic are supported by at least two or three members from our team. Therefore, what tends to happen is they exclusively work on a problem, almost like a consulting engagement. They only solve their problems. They know end-to-end -end of what is happening and they work with the teams and on their sprints and on their problems. So they're exclusively how to solve their problems and empathize with the business. And because they work exclusively with that team, but they also have a common team across the spectrum, you don't see the same problem being solved by two or three different people. If somebody solves a problem, they just fan it out to everyone else so everyone else can reuse it rather than having to do it from scratch. Therefore, you're able to solve many problems at scale rather than solving the same problem in isolation in separate teams or in centralized teams. That's right. And I think that there's a fantastic approach because I think that there's also benefits around the development of the data scientist and career progression. As you were saying, every person needs to have or gets to acquire multiple skills, I think that's fantastic for their career as well. That's really, really great. And with this method of working, how did you implement this method of working? It was part of the company structure. Interestingly, the Iconic is at a place where they've been through a few iterations and they know what works. 
and they already had all the other teams so each team that worked on a problem was structured in that fashion already in a cross function after i came in we just had a data team not set up in that function so we thought it was a really good idea to be in harmony with the other teams just set it up in the same fashion we were hoping that it would work and we realized that it had actually worked much better than we we hoped for where everyone is in a cross function now they know what they are doing they can work exclusively on problems and the team also enjoys working like that so that they are not randomly thrown at stuff to do at the middle of the day like in other places like you would expect nobody would come in and say solve this problem right now and next day come and they solve some other problem everybody knows what their backlog looks like everybody knows what problems they're going to be solving for a quarter so it's a win win for everyone you can actually spend quality time solving a problem that's super interesting and how is the backlog and the priorities created so each uh, team that they work for has a product owner and the product owner will liaise with the business and they'll come back with a business problem rather than a data problem so they'll come with a business problem and product owner he or she will then break it down into component parts let's say this needs data and insights help this needs algorithmic help this needs ux help this needs developer time and so on and so forth so they are like a very well oiled a wholesome functioning unit so they can take care of all the business's tech needs in one go that's really great so a cross functional team to deliver the outcome for yeah. the business is that right that's right yep that is fantastic and how do you guys do demand management cuz the business wants a lot more wants more projects done or sometimes less depending on the timing of the business or the cycle how do you guys do the demand management so again at the company level the leaders of this company have had a good vision in terms of setting up what we call the objectives and key results the one that google follows and was made famous by intel handy grove at intel so what we do is we basically at the beginning of a half or a beginning of a quarter everybody from all the way from the top to all the way to an individual team sets an objective and says we will accomplish this objective and we'll measure it based on these key results so everybody there is complete transparency on what the company wants to achieve as a whole and what each individual team wants to achieve as a whole and we continuously score ourselves on that stuff and that's how we know what we want to do and it's all planned out completely i know that a uh, business as usual work wouldn't fit into or ram- sudden ad hoc stuff wouldn't fit into an objective at the beginning of the quarter but we budget time for it and we make sure that we don't spend more than enough time on just responding to instant needs but always have mm-hmm. something a longer term goal longer term thing to achieve because sometimes in the urgent versus important race the urgent always wins and you don't do the important stuff and so we don't want to do that we always focus on the important stuff and when urgent comes in we handle it on a needed basis and if it gets beyond controllable then we find a smarter way to either automate it away or morph it into a different thing or understand why this question keeps coming up in different fashion and try to address it at its root rather than trying to keep continuously addressing that question every time it comes up that's really great i think because as you said like a lot of places get the people get pulled into urgent but sometimes not very important tasks and, yep. and the important ones get get forgotten so this is a True. great way to manage it and it's not only that you do urgent or important stuff for the business but if you think about it at the end of the day team member also feels good about the work they do and feel more va- valuable and vindicated about the work they do if they get to work on key important things that change the business rather than always being somebody who is continuously responding to a report pulling request or an analysis request and don't know what why it's been asked or why it gets done so if you have by design a setup where the business can ask only urgent questions once in a while but they have to always think through their problems before 
that works well for everyone by design. That's really great. And for the business to think about their problem, uh, there needs to be a data culture. How do you go about building a, a data culture? From the day zero here at this at the Iconic, uh, thankfully, every single decision has been made with data. There are people here are very data hungry in the sense that there are no decisions that are made without a table or without like table of uh, metrics or without some rational analysis going behind it. So that's how, how all this culture. So everybody enforces it from the top uh, that culturally as a company, we need to make decisions based on data. So because that is set in culturally in everybody's mind, then question is not about should we use data or not. The question is about do we have the data or not? And so it's always about, yes, we have the data. And then it will immediately become the next stage of the pyramid. Do we trust this data or not? And then once you say, yes, we trust this data, the question will again start becoming more and more mature and sophisticated. So I'll give you an example without naming names. I was once in a meeting where somebody said, I don't know these basic things. These are all the questions we have. Can you go away, find out in our database what the answers are and come back in two months? This is all we want. And we sat down in the room. In 15 minutes, we answered all the questions. And then they're like, that's pretty much it. We don't have any more questions. And of course, you can always have more questions. And then we said, no, you ask us more questions. They're like, we don't have any more questions. So then they went away for an offsite, thought about more questions to ask. And then they started asking smarter questions. And so basically the culture is a lot of people spend their time just getting data, putting it in a place and then walking away. But what we want to do is go beyond that and start getting people to ask tougher and tougher questions that makes us feel more challenged so that we also feel grooved about the work we do. And the business also starts asking smarter questions and answering smarter business problems. So it, it sounds like, at least at the Iconic, the data or data-driven culture starts right at the top and there's that executive support that trickles down through the organization and makes everyone data hungry and willing to learn. Have you seen places that are not at that stage yet? From a consulting point of view, when I work for different companies, yes, there are different companies at different levels of maturity. And I say there are three villains that actually stop you typically from being a data-driven company, right? The first villain usually is analysis paralysis. This happens because you just don't know what to do. Everyone can do analysis, everyone can get data, but you can't even align on if the data is the right data. You can't align on if the metric is the right metric and if the analysis is the right analysis. So people overanalyze things and people spend so much time just analyzing things and getting data that they don't make decisions. So that happens in a lot of companies where the data is siloed, departments are siloed and stuff like that. The second thing that actually stops people from using data driven decision making is actually the reason that systems don't talk to each other. Systems hate each other, which means over time, organically, multiple systems are built in different ways. And more often than not, analytical systems sit much farther away from production systems and systems that can actually talk to a customer. So you can look at a dashboard, you can say, wow, this is amazing insight, or you look at PowerPoint presentation and say, amazing insight, let's do something about it. By the time you decide to do something about it, and you actually do something about it, it would have been like two months to two years. And that kind of disconnect between where you make a decision and how the decision gets converted into an action is missing in a lot of companies. And so when that happens, people slowly start losing trust in the data. They're like, yes, this analysis is amazing. Yes, this model is amazing, but we can't do anything because we don't have the infrastructure for it. And therefore they don't do anything. So if you can make the systems talk to each other and love each other, that will again accelerate people asking questions in a far smarter way and actually making something with it. 
And finally, people don't have an actionable approach to this. If you actually set up a place where people can immediately take action out of data, they start taking action on everything, which again is a dangerous thing to do. There's this common, for a person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you give someone data and actionable data, they start taking action on everything. Again, that is a problem. So how do you, by design, set things up where you can take action, but you have to think through and you, can, you can't just immediately do something at a click of a button. So how do you have a staggered, tiered action approach that will help you again make more and better data-driven decisions. What are some of the, some examples at each of those three levels from your industry? What does that look like in your day-to-day? For example, in analysis paralysis, what happens is you'll have multiple databases. So if you go to a company and you ask someone, what is the revenue? Somebody would say, Revenues X, somebody will say revenues Y, and somebody else will say revenues Z. If you can't agree on some a basic metric like how much money you've made, you're probably not going to agree on other metrics like how many customers you have and all of that stuff. So that causes a lot of paralysis because you're continuously fighting over whose metric is the right metric and whose metric is the best metric, rather than saying, yes, we all agree on this metric, let's now take action on it. So that doesn't happen. So for that, you need to have a curated set of metrics that everybody aligns and agrees and is the right metric that is validated. So that is one thing that we work on. And that's a problem that I see in a lot of my other peers. The second thing that we spoke about is systems loving each other. So I'll give you a simple example. So if you have a dashboard that can say which kind of customers, like what kind of products, who will convert next, what will happen, you can see all of that in a dashboard. But if you can't take action off it, that's completely useless. What we do is we can say, for example, build a simple dashboard where you can say, show me all the people who've done this, 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 and this, who like these products, who might also like these products, who've done this. It'll give you a list and you can just say, okay, send email to all these people. You can click a button. It'll automatically go to a platform. The platform will automatically send an email. So the gap between making a decision and taking action on top of the decision is very, very minimal. So a system set up like that where your CRM systems love your production systems, love your analytical systems. That's an amazing place to be in. And the final thing is action. So every time we can set up stuff where action can actually happen instantly, but instead of setting it up that way, by design, we ensure that if some actions need to be taken, you need to do the whole analysis all the way down, forward and backward, and you can need to look at the whole funnel. So you just can't say, I did something, I did a marketing campaign or I did a product feature and the revenue went up. You just can't say that. You will have to prove that through the funnel that because I did this, how did all the way from acquisition to activation to retention to rewards to all the way to the end to customer satisfaction, how did all of these stages of the funnel impact? What will happen if you do this? And therefore, should you do it or not? Rather than just making vision based on just one metric or one lift in parameter. Do you have any experience or any tips on how to help businesses move from one stage to the next? The only way I've seen it work is it's completely, the data analytics is completely a matter of credibility, if I had to put it in one word. So if you can show that things work through a simple proof of concept in a fashion where you can quickly produce an output that has actual business value and people can see what it can do and how it can impact their business, everyone is logical enough to invest in it. So my suggestion to people who want us to do it or who are trying to do it is always start with a small use case, show value in it, and then you can see everyone wanting to invest and spend time with it rather than trying to do it the best way possible and then worrying about the whole technical stack of it, the whole algorithm, the whole math behind it, and not worrying about how the business will use it. So there's this common thing that in Donald Lutz's book, premature optimization is the root of all evil. So if you try to optimize your solution or your product 
for the nth degree so that you feel as a purist that this is amazing the business would have gone far away from it and nobody would want to use it so quick small iterations of it that everyone finds useful would be the best approach to i love that answer that's ah, that is so true it's yeah it's fantastic tell me what happens then when you're in the actionable data territory and you have a a good data driven culture in the organization you're able to start automating more of the work working more at scale what happens then what are the challenges and what happens after so what happens after like i said was you you can always answer some questions you can always answer some burning business questions and help them find out why things happen a particular way help them understand why customers behave in a particular way how you should be doing business but once you answer basic stuff then people will start asking more and more complicated questions and it's an unending cycle of that right so you answer something as basic as what your revenue is what ha- what's happening why are customers buying then they'll ask start asking smarter questions like why are they doing it this way if they could have done it that way and if we do this and then if you answer that easily then they'll ask better and better questions it's this basic uh, premise is how humans have evolved once we start doing smarter and smarter things and automating away the boring stuff right like for example in ancient egypt this is the story i keep telling people and you have to put up with me for that in ancient egypt people were carrying stones because they didn't have a better way to do it while building a pyramid and then they invented machines so they said oh now the machines will pull the stones and humans can do smarter things like thinking about how to better do agriculture and then humans were doing all the agriculture then agriculture revolution came where machines could do agricultural stuff so humans like okay now we can think about smarter things too like building products at scale then again machines came there and machines could do products at scale after the industrial revolution then humans said now we can do other smarter things like inventing inventing and discovering new electronic stuff so we went around inventing telegraph and telephone so that people don't have to run to communicate messages and then we had the internet come through and then people said now the internet can do it humans don't have to do basic stuff so humans don't have to remember all of these things internet is the source space of everything so similar way at the business too once you automate away all the boring stuff you will free up so much of your mental bandwidth and time to spend on smarter questions and pursuit of smarter things and therefore as a business you can grow and do much more new and novel things that you probably wouldn't be able to do if you're stuck in the basics of trying to just get some basic data trying to find some answers to basic questions that's when it gets even more exciting i assume yeah that's true the thing that keeps me going is always the fact that i'll answer this and somebody will always ask me a much smarter question i won't be able to answer and that's the challenge that we enjoy here we like ask us things that we don't know and we'll probably go out and figure out how to do it rather than just asking us to do the same stuff again and again which machines should be doing so i keep saying this humans should be doing human stuff and machines should be doing machine stuff that's fantastic well, actually i should ask you how did you end up in australia so i was working for a publisher here and then the publisher wanted me to come and join them in australia and so i just moved to australia it seemed like an interesting opportunity to solve a problem uh, where they were trying to create a new business unit out of get a new line of business from data and audience insights and so it seemed like an interesting problem to do thought it would be worth the worth the change in a change of location what did you find most challenging or interesting when you first got here the interesting thing here is i'm i'm not sure if you read this book about australia it's called the tyranny of distance and it interestingly highlights how there are things here which uh, happen for a particular reason because nobody's looked into it in much detail and people are happy to have it in a particular fashion or shape for example what i mean is you are happy to your content you're ha- solving a standard business problem you're delivering standard service you probably don't feel like you want to stand out by doing something drastically different 
like you would do in other places and that's an interesting thing and now i see over the last few years i've seen that every single business wants to be on that bleeding edge every single business wants to differentiate themselves and that shift has been interesting in having at least in the data analytics space i see that when i came in here it was probably a few years behind say the us or the uk market now it's as good as any other market in in the world where we're trying to work on more challenging problems we were, were trying to solve problems that same people are trying to solve in a different country and not trying to solve an older problem from the past it's true i agree with that i wanted to ask you about business case that sorry a case study that you could share with us we've had a, a few listeners ask for an end to end case study where you could share some of the stages the approaches and the challenges do you have one that you could share with us uh, there are a few i've been curious on what kind of case study would be more useful and i can probably tailor it to be of particular value could yeah. be around how get an algorithm to work to all the way to how you can set up a team so it could be anything that i'm more than happy to spend time on a particular topic when you say set up a team that's completely from scratch let's go with that one please okay so so when i joined iconic there were two people in my team they were there were two analysts in our team and they were doing amazing work in terms of trying to understand how product usage is being and how marketing work all that stuff then we realized that the reason it was this way was because people were not appreciative of the fact of what data could do for you and what an algorithm can do for you and so what we've done is with every single department here we've actually taken up a proof of concept we'd say okay what do you want to solve and they would say we want to solve this problem and we take the problem like i said we do a simple proof of concept for example build an optimization algorithm or build a personalization algorithm there and they would say this is amazing can we do it continuously and then we'd say if you have to do it continuously you probably need someone full time to actually do it and they'd say yes we could actually get someone full time to do it and that way what we've done is based on both from a credibility raising measure and also from a value generating measure what we've done is always done a proof of concept for all the teams they would say yes this is exactly what we want can we get one more member who can do it and that way we've done progressively added more people to the team uh, now there are around 24 people in the team from initially there were just two people in the team and we're still looking for six more people so if anybody's listening to this podcast if you want to join us just give me a shout and we can probably work something out that's amazing what type of skills do you look for in people that you hire we typically look for somebody who's happy to play in that t shape role that i mentioned who's happy to do their own data engineering happy to do their own data science and happy to talk to the business about what problems they solve and not just wants to focus on one particular area that's what we generally look for and somebody who's willing to learn and more importantly unlearn what they know the problem with data analytics i've seen is people come with a lot of learnings or baggage from the past and they're not willing to unlearn it because things change so rapidly so fast if you don't want to do it it becomes very difficult it conflicts with what you know versus what we want to do and that kind of creates a lot of issues so if you're willing to learn and unlearn things fast and willing to work across the spectrum you're the right person that's that's all we look for it sounds like you've grown the team quite quickly i think you've been at the iconic for a year just over a year i think mm-hmm. have you had any challenges in growing at that speed uh, not necessarily because the problems were always there it was never asked so once we solved the problem all we had to do was find the person to bring them on board and it's easy to find a person to bring them on board if you can tell them what work they'll be doing and what problem they'll be solving so our interviews are not generic interviews where we just ask standard questions we tell them what problems are waiting for them for the next 3 to 6 months and what they that gets them really excited and wanting to join so that's been really easy so again it's been a lot of business help to get people in on board and 
solve the problems that people would not get an opportunity to solve elsewhere. That's fantastic. Yeah, and it sounds like the business is definitely on board. How about from the scaling the team perspective internally, or maybe the team culture? Have you had any challenges or anything that you've had to keep in mind during this time? of rapid expansion, something that you have to keep your mind on regarding the team culture? Thankfully, the team culture here is one of learning and always being on the learning curve. Uh, we believe more in that you always need to learn stuff. We don't feel bad about not knowing stuff. We don't feel bad about failing fast. So there's this common example my data science manager gives me. So he came in and he had to build this a recommender system that was going to make the catalog much better. And we deployed it. And the first day when we deployed it, it performed poorly than a vanilla catalog. Everyone was so happy and excited that we did something and we saw a value and we saw an output rather than just thinking about doing it. Uh, that's the culture. The culture is where we appreciate everyone failing fast and failing forward rather than not doing and not taking risks at all. So with that kind of a culture in this company, what has always happened is we would say, yeah, we're going to do these things. People would say we probably need time or support to learn these things and move on with these things. So we've always provided an opportunity to do that. So that has not caused a lot of friction or a lot of angst, I would say. What do you do to maintain that culture and make sure that it continues? What we try to do is be places where you can actually showcase the value of those culture, right? For example, today, every second Friday is an event at the Iconic, at least within the tech team. So this Friday today was a pet project day. And a couple of days back was a learning day. So you could learn whatever you want on that day. You're not expected to do any work. You could learn whatever you want, whatever technology you want that is relevant to the business. And today, for example, on Pred Project Day, you could either use that learning or build something that you think should be built in this business, but nobody's spending time and effort on. And that you can see amazing ideas being thrown. The energy is just brilliant. But everyone's reaching out to everyone and asking, how do we do these things? How do we build this cool stuff? And then everyone comes together at 4.30 in the evening and presents what they have built for the day. So that kind of gives you an opportunity to showcase your learning. So you could be somebody who is an analyst who wants to become a developer or wants to become a marketer, wants to become anything that you want to become. You could use this day as an opportunity to try that out, try the talent out and actually showcase in front of people, which is the best validation that you get. Interesting. Are you able to share any of the ideas that have come up through that process? So there are a few things that Honor App has actually come out as a part of that process. One is what we called a snap to shop on our app, which is you can take a photo of something, upload it, and then it will return back all the products that look similar to it or look exactly like it on our website. So it was somebody's pet project idea and then it actually became an actual feature of the app. Or there are some analysis and models, for example, a prediction model, an email personalization model was actually a pet project of someone on that day and everyone loved it. So it actually became an actual personalization model that went into production. So there are examples like that where people spend time on it maybe one or two pet project days and eventually it actually sees light in the form of an actual feature on the app or an actual algorithm that goes into production. Could you tell us more about the process from the idea being created in that pet project day until mm -hmm. it makes it to the app? What are the, the steps in between? How does that happen? So every when we have a pet project day, so example of today, the day before everyone comes and pitches and says, I have this idea and I think I want to build it, but I need some help on these, these, these bits. And so people who don't have an idea of their own or who feel that this idea is more interesting can come and join and make a team. So if you're, say, a data scientist or an analyst, you want some developer help to build an application and you want some other help, you could say, I need help. And somebody is more than happy to come and join your team and help you. And you could do it and it'd be too much to expect things to work on the first day. So people typically take one or two pet project days or even three days. 
Prepaid project is basically over a quarter. They work on it continuously on that idea. And once they ship it, what ends up happening is every quarter, the IDs that are shipped get a specific uh, time on this, gets a sprint of its own, where a team gets put together. The team that worked on gets a whole sprint, which is two weeks to work on that idea and show uh, MVP that can actually go on an app or a website or, a, or whatever it is. And then if that is more valuable, then in the upcoming quarters, it can actually become a team's proper objective to solve and finish. That's how it is. I wanted to ask you, what is on your mind these days? What are the, the challenges that you're working on? So we're working on, like I keep going back to the stack because that's where we always mm -hmm. go back to, which is the data to decisions. And then there is engineering and data science and data translation. To be able to do this at scale, you just can't always hire more and more people, right? It's not about getting more data people in the company. It's about getting the whole company on to be a data team with themselves to be on the data journey. And on that, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build platforms where the business can automatically answer these questions by themselves, either through dashboards or queries or whatever it is that without having too much coding, they can answer them. And so we built a platform, an online uh, open source visualization platform that the business can use to build their own dashboards build their own simulators and all of that stuff. So now the business is able to do much more than having to wait for an analyst to pull reports for them regularly. Now, once we've solved that area of the stack, we went to the other extreme of the stack where data was getting created. At the Iconic, we have what we call the microservices architecture culture, where everybody builds everything as a microservice, which means you don't just have three, four source systems. You eventually end up having 150 microservices and basically two, three source systems. If you have a data engineering team, which has to go into each of these microservices and get data, that's going to take forever and nobody will be able to use that data on any analysis. So what we're working on is getting all the developers to be their own data engineers in the sense that we're working on an architecture where a developer can build something or a tech team can build something and automatically the data will get pushed through an architecture directly into a database without having to do any engineering in between. Do that at scale so that at the end of the day, all that will happen is somebody will build a microservice that does a particular thing. They can immediately go to a dashboard and start looking at the results of what it's hap what's happening. So you can basically enable a build, measure, learn culture where people can build something, they can instantly measure it and learn from it rather than building something and then saying, I can't measure this, so therefore I can't learn and therefore I can't improve it. So trying to make that flywheel of build, measure, learn, work faster is what we're trying to do. And that's the one thing that's a big focus for me and our team in, the next, in this com coming quarter. That's outstanding to bring in the lean startup methodology and essentially speed up the time that it takes to go around one build, measure, learn cycle. And how are you guys designing the experiments, say, for one build, measure, learn cycle? So, the, like I said, the team is completely equipped with all kinds of people, right? So it has an analyst or a data scientist, a developer, all of them. So they design and they define that we'll build it. And this is the metric that means that this is a success, right? So if they have an objective to build something, they'll have a key result before even they start building it to say, if you build it, we'll do X by X. We'll increase users by Y percent or we'll increase page visits by X, whatever it is the metric is. And they'll actually measure that metric and see if it has been a success or not. So they predefine what their success should look like and measure it instantly. So that lets them build and measure faster and learn from their mistakes. That's awesome. The cycle is planned in reverse. That is where you said that you define what you want to, to learn, mm -hmm. then what you want to measure as a result and what you're going to build and then you execute 
execute in a build, measure, learn path. That's really interesting. And a lot of people, when they think of e-commerce businesses, a lot of people think that they're a lot more advanced in terms of data analytics by the fact of being you know, born on the web and on the cloud and digital, etc. Do you see that as a fact? I think by virtue of being fairly new to the, in terms of who they are, they have the ability to actually build things from scratch and be able to change things much faster. For example, I've worked with old Australian legacy businesses and although there is a desire to move fast, change things rapidly, a lot of things are still in various organically built various environments and various places, which causes the the momentum to not be that faster. So I definitely do agree that that's the case, but it's not by virtue of being an online or an e-commerce company. It's just by virtue of being a young company that has the ability to actually change things faster uh, rather than an old company, which has been there for quite some time and have the systems and processes set apart so diversely. That's so true. That's awesome. Thank you. So now I would like to add Zoom out a little bit and ask you, I guess, more high-level questions. You mentioned the T-shaped skills in the data to decisions chain for data scientists. Is there anything else that you would say it makes a great data scientist? It's the sense of curiosity. And I think sense of curiosity is what makes a human a human. So basically anything that would make you a better human is what will make you a better data scientist. More empathy for the business, more curiosity, all of those things. Basically we do what humans have done over the ages. We just do that with data for a business. That's that's how I like to think about data science. That's fantastic. And I love that you mentioned the empathy there. That's great. And what about data science leaders? What do you think makes a great data science leader? So interestingly, I've been, I'm not sure if you've heard this, but thrown around quite a lot and I use this more often than not, is data science these days is 80% change management and 20% actual technicalities. You could go into a business today and then just build a segmentation model or a prediction model like that because the tools and technologies are there. But then getting the business to use it and getting it out there is the hardest challenge. So my belief is a data science leader needs to be more of a strategist who can do the change management, who can communicate it to the business, both top and down, why some things are happening and less worried about how the technique. You can hire the right people who can do all of that stuff. But as a leader, you need to explain the vision and explain why you're doing things a certain way because that buy-in is more important than actually doing the work. I could not agree more. That is fantastic. That's really good advice. Tell me what excites you the most about the data space and about data science. What excites me more is I'm just being more optimistic maybe, but I'm seeing more and more people wanting to do this as a profession and not just be a data scientist, but at least at the Iconic, what you've seen is more and more people across departments want to do aspects of it by themselves so that they become a better data-driven marketing member or they become a data-driven operations team member. They become better data. So they want to learn these skills so that they can do their stuff better. It's slowly starting to, the boundaries are starting to fade. It's no longer somebody just doing their function and saying, give me this number or do this analysis. It's saying they're telling, this is essential to my job and everybody is thinking of data as a key part of their job and not just another function in the company. So that's really exciting. And that kind of a journey is where businesses can really stand out from one another, where everybody in the business thinks as a data person rather than just having one team doing it. So true. Do you have a failure or an apparent failure that has set you up for later success? So there have been cases where I wouldn't qualify it as a failure, but more often than not, when you do something, when you get so excited, I remember my first manager telling me there is research and there is business. This is not research. This is business. 
so what tends to happen is more often that you get so excited by solving a problem that you keep researching too much into it then you don't generate any output and i remember working on a project which was i think a personalization project i got so excited so carried away trying to do the best possible collaborative filtering i could find on the internet back in those days and trying to cobble it all up but by the time i could come up with something that was useful the team had said no this is not useful and they had actually lost that project which is kind of not good so i've always in my mind it's i keep repeating to myself that business value first poc first and then go crazy about intellectually making it smarter and that's always something that i put in my day to day life and that's something i tell my team members too is worry don't worry about making it perfect always worry about getting it out and showing value and then making it perfect i love that approach that you have of delivering value it's really interesting to to hear where it came from and definitely done that through your career that's outstanding do you have a a passion or maybe a secret passion that may seem unrelated to the data space also i recently met and i keep telling this okay again another story right Yeah. Usually with cabs and people is when you realize interesting things. I was so once in a cab and then the cabby cabby asked me what do you do for a living and I explained to him I use data and I help make decisions on how to spend better marketing money and all this stuff and I was in my previous job and so he just summarized in one line so basically all you do is make people buy more. So that's all that was his one line summary of what my life's mission was, right? So I don't think I would want that to be my life's mission or if we assume that everyone has a mission here i can already see for example in the area of in the public space for the governments for societies here there are so much data that's being collected and there are so many things we could do it's just that the amount of intelligence and data and money thrown at businesses if they were thrown at say society and civil life and the governments we could do much more smarter things with what we can do with data and that's always been my goal is like if i could get an opportunity to help someone and i recently spoke to somebody who who works for the government they were trying to solve a problem where they were trying to predict how what are all the intersections here that have the most number of accidents and therefore how can we use better indications or street lights or signals or whatever it is these are simple problems that you solve at business every day but that has such a huge impact on a normal person and if can you use data to make everyone's life better that's that's the kind of thing i've always interesting what is the best advice that you have received in your career the two things right the first thing always don't focus too much on making it the best possible always get something out of value like the one i mentioned before that's the first advice that i've received and i've always used that in my day to day thing the second big thing is is the basic golden rule applied in the analytics world which is never stop learning and never treat someone who doesn't know something differently than you treat yourself right so basically if you stop learning you're going to become irrelevant really fast in the space so never stop learning and if somebody doesn't okay. know try to teach them rather than saying treating them differently because they don't know so basically treat someone the same way they would treat you that that kind of stuff is what obviously those are two things i've received as advice that's great and what do you do to keep learning i so for example there are, there are some team members who are always on some coursera course or data camp course or learning something and what i try to do is i also try to do that course and we try to see who finishes it first so we were always learning new programming languages trying to learn new concepts because the data space is changing so fast you as someone who's in the space you have seen in the last 3 4 years there are so many things that have come and gone and are coming and so if you don't keep yourself abreast of it you just become completely irrelevant so basically all the online learning platforms plus trying to be part of some challenges that are there in the public space is how I try to keep that. I guess in a related question, I wanted to ask you about uh, the imposter syndrome in data science. 
Mm-hmm. What do you think of it? Uh, like I said, the golden rule is what is there is. I wouldn't call them imposters. These are just people who think of it differently. There are people definitely walking around, spouting stuff and throwing terminologies and names. But it's just their way of being connected to the data science space. So I don't. I would think of them any different than I think of someone who knows their own stuff. For me, what matters in the end is are they able to deliver on what they're talking about. That's all that matters. That's how I assess someone. So. you could be an imposter or you could be a poster i that really doesn't matter to me that's great you're a very kind kind man because sometimes there's data scientists that feel like there's so much to know in the field and in such a large and expanding field that they're quite aware of the parts that they don't know and they feel like they couldn't be a really good data scientist as a result but your way of looking at it to say you know if you can deliver the result if you can solve the problems then you're doing well that's um really really good and uh, what do you see as the the current challenges in the data space the current challenges is data is getting generated i think that the older ways of analyzing data and basically doing say data engineering which is the older etl based the older analysis based can no longer hold in the face of new business challenges so people have to continuously change and evolve how they track capture process and analyze data so that's one big challenge and for us we want to be more even driven and real time not because those are cool words but because that's the necessity of the business now customers have shorter attention spans customers have higher expectations customers have more defined needs you can't solve them by just doing things the old way i only have a couple of last questions for you and the mm-hmm. first one is what advice would you give to data scientists what i same advice i got never stop learning a lot of people think that learning a bunch of statistical techniques and working on some problems stops them I, and i don't think that's the case with a lot of data scientists but if that is not the case all never stop learning it could be a new technique could be a new approach new technology whatever it is keep an open mind and never stop learning and the second thing is always start unlearning because once you come up with a baggage this is an example that i always give is a lot of people are moving away from sas into r and python they said that this wouldn't be a good thing and then i've it's been like a lot of years now when i go and talk to the people who still work on for example on sas they would say oh sas is still going to be there r and python are just a fa- a face and it will go away these are people who are just clinging on to what they know and not wanting to move away from stuff and that's a dangerous thing because it's come to a stat stage where i don't want to name companies or name names where i've seen recruiters look at the word sas on your resume and say Oh, maybe this person is somebody we should just avoid, just because they know a language that was so famous in the past. And if things work so exclusive, like things swing so wildly, so be ready to unlearn and let things go, and be ready to always learn new things. That's the only suggestion I would give. That's fantastic advice. What advice would you have for up and coming data science leaders and people that want to lead in this function? Like the eighty percent change management is really critical. So how do you communicate to the business that? why we do something what is the vision behind it and how we do it is more important than what technology it is how it gets done and how cool it is it's more important that the business gets value from it and you can empathize with the business and their needs and that will automatically translate into better work and better quality of problems to be solved that is so true thank you so much for your time and for sharing all this before mm-hmm. we go i should ask you though for the people look to apply for the jobs that you mentioned what's the best place to go i could send you a github link part of the podcast so basically what it is is to be process is pretty simple there is a github link it is a simple test or a not not so simple test where we give you a data set of around 25000 anonymized users we give you around 40 odd features for these users and we ask you to predict their gender without having a labeled data set 
and then we measure it against our current algorithm or what we have and we actually know their genders and we measure it and see how accurate it is and if you actually manage to do all of that you eventually get a call and we have one final round that's pretty much it that's fantastic like a kaggle competition for yeah. job at the iconic yes and it's publicly out there and that report that i sent you will also have a career plan for 5 years which talks about what will you do over the course of your career wherever you come in and so that you are not just coming in to solve a problem you're coming in both to personally learn and grow as a data science member and that's outstanding actually like you can't get much better than that that's great i'll put it on the show notes thank um, you so much shira thank you so much this is extremely interesting thank you so much for doing the interview thank you so much for having me and thanks for patiently listening to me it was fantastic thank you all speak soon that brings this episode to conclusion thank you so much for listening please find us on datafuturology.com or on facebook twitter linkedin or instagram as datafuturology also go to datafuturology.com/podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes if you like this episode it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.